All right, we should be good now. Revelation chapter 5. I am excited to get into the message this morning. I pray that the Lord will use it to be a blessing to us. Revelation chapter 5. And to begin with, we'll read verses 1 and 2. Revelation chapter number 5, the Word of God says this, And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within, and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? The subject of the message this morning will be taken from that question in verse number 2, where the Word of God says, Who is worthy? Heavenly Father, one more time, I just feel the need to ask you to help me preach this morning, and I pray, Lord, that you would be with every heart, that we would receive the Word with gladness. We thank you, Lord, for our salvation. We thank you for this place where we can come and meet and worship you together this morning. Lord, we know, as the song says, All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One come down. Be with those who couldn't make it today for whatever reason that would like to be here that usually are here. And Lord, please be with those of us here in this room. May we receive the Word of God this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. A couple of things before we continue to go through chapter number 5. Number 1, the scene. Number 1, we're going to set the scene. The book of Revelation, if you've ever gotten interested, and I want to see what the prophecies are and what's going to happen in the end time. Well, first off, you start to read it, and it's a little bit confusing sometimes. Sometimes there's a little bit of symbolism. Sometimes there's a little bit of debate and a little bit of, well, this could mean this, but we're not exactly sure. But to begin with, the first three chapters are not prophecies about the end times. It's Jesus Christ appearing to John on the Isle of Patmos, and then it's the letters to the seven churches of that day where he addressed the issues that were going on. Chapter 4 and verse number 1 is where the prophecy begins to unfold. What happens in chapter 4 and onward is things that have not happened yet, but the word of the eternal God and Jesus Christ himself has promised that they are going to happen. So we read it and we take it for fact. We know that the Word of God is true. We know that the character of God is true. Therefore, what is prophesied in the Word of God that is yet to come is going to come. So chapter number 4, verse number 1, after the letters to the churches are completed, John says this, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. We're going to go through a lot of scripture this morning, and to begin with, we'll do a quick Bible study through chapter 4 to set the scene for chapter number 5. But what John is told is he's going to see things which must be hereafter. They're going to happen, but what he's seeing, he's literally being a partaker and a viewer of a scene that has not happened yet in human history, but through the vision, God is allowing him to see this future scene in heaven. Verse number two, and immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. What he's seeing is in the future. The place he is seeing is heaven and it's the very throne room of God. Verse 3 says, And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. We're told in the Old Testament that the high priest wore a chain and part of the stones that were in the necklace that went around his neck was a sardine stone and also a jasper that was there. 
The sardine stone was blood red, perhaps representing the blood of Jesus Christ. We're then told that around the throne of God, there is a rainbow, and it looks in sight like unto an emerald. As I said, there's a lot in the book of Revelation that it just states it as a fact and doesn't really interpret all the meaning before it. So what's the main meaning? The main meaning is this is what the throne of God looks like in heaven, but then we kind of wonder, well, what could it symbolize, and what does it picture. We know that the rainbow was given as a promise of peace, that God would not utterly destroy the earth by water ever again. We know that emerald is green and that it symbolizes life. So perhaps this around the throne of God represents the promise of eternal life to his people, that when he has given us salvation, it is salvation that lasts forever and we will never perish. His promise of eternal life is true and it will last forever. We're in Revelation chapter 4 and let's continue along now to verse number 4. Verse 4 says, And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of golds. Here are crowns of gold. Here around the throne of God, there's 24 elders. That word therefore, elder, is a word that refers to humans. If God will help me get my words out and slow down, I'm like, what was I going to say? And what's in my notes? And my mind's spinning ahead to the future. So let me stop and get a drink, see if that helps. Just water. That's all that it is. It's a word for human leaders. In the Old Testament, it referred to the leaders of the 12 tribes and the council that would be set up. In the New Testament, the word is used for the overseers of the church, which are sometimes called elders. So whoever these people are, we don't really know. They're not named. We're not told. But there's 24 people that used to be humans that have been given this special seat in heaven after they have died. Some have said perhaps it's leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel and the twelve apostles because that would represent the nation of Israel and it would represent the church age. But as Brother Andrew has been saying in his Sunday school and as we see in the text this morning, the Bible is not primarily about us, it's primarily about God. And heaven is not a place that's going to be about you or I. It's going to be a place that is about Jesus Christ. And what we'll see that these people, who they are, is really irrelevant because what they do is they praise God Non-stop. We see further evidence that they were human people who have been saved, born again, redeemed, and now have a seat in heaven when it says that they were clothed in white raiment. Revelation 3, 5 says, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. White raiment is what we will wear in heaven because it symbolizes the fact that it's not our righteousness, but Christ's righteousness has been given to us to cover our sins. And as I said, preaching recently on the prayer of Hezekiah, there is no way that we can deny that we are sin. The Bible says, if you'd say that you have no sin, then you make him a liar and his word is not in you. But in that legal setting in heaven, when the accuser of the brethren, Satan, would like to come and say, they have sinned, he will not be able to deny that our sin has been paid for. Because what we wear, the white robes, will not signify our righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ, which was imputed unto us at the moment of salvation. As I said, I'm going to read you a lot of scriptures this morning. Revelation 19 and 7, as the book comes to a close, says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of 
of the Lamb is come, and the wife hath made herself ready. Symbolically, the church is called the bride of Jesus Christ. And to her, what? To the church was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. As I said, not that comes from us, but that was given to us. It symbolizes righteousness. The verses that follow say that heaven is open and a white horse came and Jesus Christ sits upon that horse. Verse 13, he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. One day in heaven we will be wearing those same white garments to represent the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Then it says at the end of verse number 4 that these elders had upon their heads crowns of gold. The Bible is full of about five or six different places where it talks about if we live for Jesus Christ in certain areas one day at the judgment seat He will reward us. He will give us crowns. We're told about a crown of righteousness. About a crown for pointing souls to Jesus Christ. Crowns that are given to the under-shepherds of the church who follow their calling out well, to those who love His appearing. It's a whole separate story. But as we live for Jesus Christ, we are earning rewards in heaven as we'll see in a moment, that are not primarily for us to celebrate how good we are, but that may, we may present them to God Himself and say, look, here is evidence that I loved you, and I want to give my crown to you and present it to you. I'll just stop and say this briefly. First Peter chapter 5 and verse number 4 says this. It's talking there in that chapter about the under-shepherds of the church. And then it says, and when the chief shepherd shall appear. So there's under-shepherds that help lead the church, but Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd of the church. The church does not belong to the pastor, it belongs to Jesus Christ. And the pastors simply come in their position and try to help lead and guide the church. But the bride does not belong to anyone who's human. The bride belongs to Jesus Christ. But it says, when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Here it says that crowns are given at the appearing of Jesus Christ. I believe that when you start reading chapter 4 in the book of Revelation through the end, that the rapture of the church has already taken place. It's one of those things we talk about as we did in Sunday school this morning. We might have some disagreements among each other, and if so, that's fine. I'll still eat lunch with you. I'll still be your friend. I don't think you're a heretic if you believe Jesus is coming halfway through the tribulation, or if He's coming when it's all the way over. But I personally take the view that there's a moment in an hour which no one knows, not the saved, not the lost, when Jesus Christ will come as a thief in the night, and as the Apostle Paul described it, we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. I believe that's different than the final coming when He comes to earth to defeat His enemies and take the throne. And I believe that Jesus Christ could come today. He could come tomorrow. It's imminent. We're supposed to be ready. So I just think it's interesting that it says here, when he appears, he's going to give crowns of glory to the elders. And here we see the elders in heaven at this point already wearing the crown. I think it's just a minor evidence that Jesus has already returned and passed out some of those crowns. I don't think the church is on earth for what follows from chapter number 4. 
Verse number 5, Revelation 4 and verse 5. And out of the throne proceed lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Those are referenced in Revelation 1-4 simply as angels. As we'll see even in this chapter and throughout the Bible, angels are given certain ranks. They even have different strengths. Sometimes you'll see a mighty angel, a strong angel. Sometimes angels are fighting and a stronger angel has to show up and deliver the side that's fighting for the right because angels have different ranks and positions, strengths, and abilities. Verse number six. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Okay, let me check my notes. This word here for beast simply means beings. It means a live thing. And what we believe they're referencing, especially when we compare with the writings that are in Ezekiel chapter 1 and in Isaiah chapter number 6, is that they are high-ranking angelic beings. Sometimes they're called cherubim, and then there's even different ones that seem to be a little bit higher that are called seraphim, which I believe is what this is referencing because it matches with what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 through 3. But at any rate, these are beings that are close to the throne of God. They help cover. They praise God. I believe that the devil himself was said of in Ezekiel 28, 14, thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. He used to have one of these positions close to the throne of God where he would spread his wings and cover the mercy seat and cover the very place where God himself sat upon the throne. And because he was beautiful to look at and because he had that high ranking position and one day Lucifer said in his heart, I will be magnified. I will be worshipped as the most high. He was cast out of heaven and perhaps as many as one-third of the angels in heaven worshipped Lucifer, followed him, were cast from heaven, and that is what is called demons, which the word demon does not appear in the Bible, but sometimes they're called spirits, sometimes they're called evil spirits, and sometimes they're called the angels that sinned. The devil himself used to have this place in heaven, but he turned and rebelled against God, desiring all the glory. This is one of those things where I can tell you what I think and reference it, but if we tried to prove every single little point, we'd be here till next Sunday when it was time to have lunch. So I'm going to try to keep it moving, but that's what I believe was the position of the devil. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse number 3 describe the seraphim that fly in front of the throne. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And it matches what these beasts, which is what they're called here in Revelation chapter 4, are doing in front of the throne. So they are high-ranking angelic beings, sometimes called a seraphim. Verse 7, And the first beast was like a lion, and the second like a calf, and the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Even the highest ranking angel in all of heaven knows that heaven is not about them, it's about God. And they fly, they rest not, day and night back and forth with a message that is worthy to proclaim holy, holy, holy is God. There is no sin 
in Him. I believe that in Isaiah 6 and in Revelation chapter 4, which is where we're reading from now, it's interesting to note, they don't say holy once. They don't say it twice. They don't say it four times. But it's recorded in each three times. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And I believe it's because God the Father is holy. God the Son is holy. And God the Holy Spirit is holy. Which was and is and is to come. You see, God had no beginning. God will not end now and He will have no ending ever. Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the ending, saith the Lord. Jesus is the beginning, He's the end, and He's everything in between. It's all about Him. Verse 9, And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to Him that sat on the throne who liveth forever, what do the four and twenty elders do? Do they sit around admiring their crowns and how good they must be that they were given these special seats among the throne? No, they make it all about Christ as well. Verse 10, The four and twenty elders fall down before Him that sat on the throne and worship Him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Our motivation for having a reward in heaven should not be that we will get to enjoy it, but rather that we will be able to stand before God one day and say, I loved you, I lived for you, and I have something to give to you. This is the scene. It shifts into the future. This has not happened yet. It's not happened yet as of this morning, 2021. But it's going to happen very soon. And the Apostle John was taken up in this vision and was a witness of what was going on. Then something else happens. In chapter 5, this is where it begins. In the right hand of him that sat on the throne, which is God the Father, there was a book written within on the back side and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? Let me stop for just a moment again before we continue onward into this text and tell you what this book is and what the seals are. It, like I said, if I was going to show you, we'd be here for a week, but go home and read about it more in the chapters that follow. Let me tell you what they are and then tell you what it symbolizes. There's a scroll. It has seven seals. In the chapters to come, when the seals are broken, certain events take place upon the earth. Among the seven seals, there, when one is loosed, there comes four symbolic riders, one for each seal. They're described as horsemen, and they represent evils that are to come upon the earth. Conquest, war, famine, plague, and death. Then another seal is opened, and it's the cry of the martyrs, crying out for justice, saying, How long, O Lord, before our blood is avenged upon the earth? When seal number six is opened, upon the earth there is a great earthquake. The sun goes black. The moon goes red. The stars fall from heaven. There's all kinds of heavenly disturbances. And the Bible says, Every island and mountain will be moved from its place. When number seven is loosed upon the scroll, number seven unleashes seven trumpets. Let me tell you if the earth is a place you want to be during the tribulation or not. What happens when the seven trumpets are unloosed? Hail and fire mingled with blood fall from the sky. One third of the trees in the grass on the planet burn up. The Bible says a mountain burning with fire is cast into the sea. Potentially a meteorite that will fall from heaven. One of those events they're always worried about that they tell you all the destruction it would cause. The Bible says that when one of the trumpets 
trumpets, which is unleashed because the seventh seal was open, happens, then that's going to take place upon the earth. When it does, one-third of the sea becomes blood. One-third of the sea life dies. One-third of the ships in the sea are destroyed. Then another burning star falls from heaven, and one-third of the water on the planet is turned to poison. And the Bible says, many men die because of the water being turned to poison. But it's not over yet. Then one-third of the sun, moon, and stars go dark. Locusts from hell are released to torment the inhabitants of the earth. Four angels that are, are, are trapped in the Euphrates River get loosed, and the army of the horsemen will directly murder one-third of the people on the planet. That's just the first six trumpets that come from the seventh seal. All of these are things that are not going to happen unless the scroll is opened, and the scroll's not going to be open unless there's someone who is worthy to open the scroll and to judge the earth. The word here for worthy means a legal and a moral right to do so. Who has the legal right to judge this earth? Who is holy enough to be able to judge the earth? That's what they are asking in the text. Then finally, when the seventh trumpet is sounded, Revelation 10, 7. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. The seventh trumpet represents it's the end. This is about to get wrapped up. The earth is going to be judged. In Revelation eleven fifteen, the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of the world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. When that seventh trumpet goes off, it's symbolizing this is coming to an end. Jesus said, If you happen to be upon the earth, when you see the abomination of desolation happening, and people not being able to buy and sell unless they take the mark of the beast, and the Jews being persecuted, He said, Know that it is not even at the doors. This generation shall not pass till all be fulfilled. There is a finality to the events of the end times where Jesus Christ said when these things unfold, that's it. No more chance to get saved. No more earth. No more current heaven. All these things are going to be wrapped up. And as I said when I preached on this last month, I do not believe that all of this is symbolic. If you could explain away the future prophecies of Jesus Christ and the book of Revelation, then I think you could symbolize away all of the Bible. There's just too many specific events that Jesus said are going to happen that have not happened yet. So what is the book? What are the seals? It is going to unleash God's judgment upon the earth and bring about the end. The book has to be opened so that the end can come, so that God can judge the earth and come to reign. And let me just tell you, this world is wicked. This world needs to have judgment come. There is sin that needs to have a stop put to it. It can't continue forever. It won't continue forever. But John looks and he, he sees whatever he knows or understands. He knows this is a big deal. And God must keep His promises. God has promised He would come again. God has promised He would judge the earth. He's promised He would avenge the judge of the martyrs. And He promised that He will reign as King forever. Revelation chapter 5 and verse number 3. And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book neither to look thereon. Just remember this, this morning, there is no man that is worthy. 
There is none of mankind that is worthy. There is no one who is sinless. The Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have all gone astray. We all are like sheep that are lost, that need a shepherd and that need a Savior. And there's no man that is worth giving your unquestioned loyalty to. There's no man who is worth compromising your principles for. We're all sinners, myself included. Verse number 4, And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. John understands the significance of this. He understands that there's something in the way of God judging the earth, taking His throne and fulfilling His promises. And it's someone who is worthy to commit judgment upon the earth. And there is no man found worthy. Not me, not you, nobody else. Every man that has ever lived has come up short. So John says that he wept much. I read that the word there in the Greek gives the idea that he wept and he continued weeping. He wept much is what the text says. He knows that this is a big deal that no one is found worthy. Verse number 4 describes our sad state without a Savior. It's weeping. It's being lost. Verse number 5. One of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. No man was found worthy, but Jesus Christ is worthy. He's worthy because of a lot of reasons that the text says that we'll get to here in a little bit. But some of these verses just pack a punch that you read it and you got to go back and look at every single one of these phrases to really see what he's talking about. But one of those elders, the humans who are now in heaven wearing the righteousness of Christ that praise Him day and night and cast their crown before the throne, they say, you don't have to weep. You don't have to be sorrowful. One is found worthy. And the first thing that he describes Jesus Christ as is the lion of the tribe of Judah. You could turn to Genesis chapter number 49 if you'd like to see this scripture. Genesis chapter number 49. Now Judah was a leader of one of the twelve tribes of Israel. They come from the twelve sons of Jacob. Genesis chapter number 49 says this in verse number 1. And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in what? What are the next two words there? The last days. Three words, I guess. The last days. This is a prophecy of what is going to happen to his sons. And he includes not only a prophecy for the rest of their lifetime, but he includes the phrase last days to indicate what is going to happen through their tribes and through their descendants. Look down to verse number eight. Here he comes to Judah. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Here it's prophesied that Judah would be exalted and victorious, even among his brethren and even among the other tribes of Israel. And he says your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. You're going to be a conqueror and your brethren will bow down before you. Look at verse 9. Judah is a lion's whelp. The word there for whelp means cub. He says to Judah, you're going to be a conqueror and I'm going to give you a mascot and a symbol to symbolize what your future is. And what is it in verse number 9? It's a lion. 
He says, you're like a lion's cub. Then he says, from the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? He gives a word picture here of a young lion cub growing into a lion, then into an old lion. And he's a conqueror. He's conquered his prey. He's crouching over it. And who shall rouse him up? Who will dare to try and challenge this mighty lion, the tribe of Judah? Then verse number 10 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. Who holds a scepter? It's a king. Now we have a prophecy. Kings shall reign from the line of Judah. A lawgiver is a king. And it says that the scepter will not depart or a lawgiver cease from between his feet, meaning who shall come from the tribe of Judah until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. The word there for Shiloh is a Hebrew word that means his gift. And it's a prophecy of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, that would be the gift of God to all mankind. And he says that one day the gift of God, the Messiah, is going to come and the scepter shall never depart from his hand. And to him shall the gathering of the people be. What's the Messiah going to do? He's going to take the throne and rule and reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years and the tribes of the earth are going to come in and come out. And in Genesis chapter number 49, it's prophesied that the Messiah would be a lion from the tribe of Judah. The next part of the verse says, Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David hath prevailed. You see, the Pharisees were always coming to Jesus and trying to trip Him up. And they knew He was claiming to be the Messiah. And they wanted to nail Him to the wall and prove Him to be a heretic and to try and be smarter than He was. And in Matthew chapter 22, in verse number 41, Jesus decides to play their own game and to ask them a question that they couldn't answer. You see, He always had the answer. He's Jesus Christ. His words were full of grace and truth and wisdom. And they could never trip Him up. There's no fault in anything He said. But now he decides, I'm going to turn it back around on you and I'm going to ask you a question. Matthew 22, 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They said unto him, The son of David. The Pharisees said, We know the answer to this question. You're not going to trick us. The Messiah is going to be a son of David. You see, they were very familiar with the Old Testament Davidic covenant where Jesus said, I will establish David's throne forever. Not through David himself, but through a descendant of David. Someone would sit and rule and reign forever and ever. So the the Pharisees who rejected Jesus. They still knew the Old Testament and they knew the Messiah, the Christ, would be a son of David. Then Jesus asked them the que- another question. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. What he references there is Psalm 110. And it's a thrilling psalm where it begins by David saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit at my right hand until your enemies are called your footstool. Now, there's two things that this tells us. The first one is what Jesus is referencing. Wait a minute. David said, the Lord said unto my Lord. So if the Messiah is David's son, how can he also be David's God? 
That's the question he's bringing up. But it tells us another thing. As we studied last year in Sunday school, the Trinity in the Old Testament, it says that there is the Lord who says unto David's Lord, so there's someone who's God, and there's someone he's talking to that is also God, that God says to God, sit at my right hand till I make all the enemies your footstool. That is God the Father, and it's Jesus Christ that sits at His right hand. The Trinity is not only in the New Testament, it's in the Old Testament, and you cannot deny it if you go looking for it. So then Jesus references Psalm 110, and His question is, if David then call Him Lord... How is he his son? How can someone who is your son also be your God? And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. Jesus was really good at playing that little game and they said, let's stop asking him questions because his answers and his turning the question back into a question are getting us into trouble. Here's what the Bible is teaching. In Revelation 1.5, it says the Messiah is the root of David, meaning that's who David came from. Revelation 22.16 puts it this way. Jesus said, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. He's the root of David because he's part of the Trinity, creator of all that ever was created. He's God. He created David and all that ever was. But he also came to be born into the home of Mary and Joseph, where Mary was his mother, but God was his father. And Joseph was from the line of Judah that went to David, that went to Joseph. And I bel- uh, I'm going to get in trouble because I didn't study this, but I think Mary is somewhat in there as well. So either way you look at it, Jesus Christ was born into the home where the parents came from the line of Judah and came from David. So he can accurately be called the son of David because he comes from that ancestry, but he also can be called the root of David because he did not begin to exist when he was born in the manger. That's just when he become the son of man. He was always the son of God before the foundation of the world. He's the creator of all. And he's the descendant of David, Messiah, to die for our sins. And he has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. Revelation chapter 5 and verse number 6. I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. The lion of the tribe of Judah, who could crush the earth in an instant with his judgment, also volunteered to become the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And he was slain for my sin and for yours. Verse number 7. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. The book of John tells us that God has chosen to give judgment to the Son of God. Judgment will be executed by Jesus Christ. And here's God the Father sitting upon the throne. No one's worthy to open the book, but Jesus is found worthy. And Jesus is able to walk right up to God and take it out of His hand so that He may be the one that executes judgment. I'll just say this briefly. There's another interesting verse in Daniel chapter 7 that is describing an end times judgment. I think the judgment of the nations, but it's either the judgment of the nations or the great white throne judgment. And it says this, Daniel 7.13. 
I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. Who's that? That's Jesus Christ. And came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Who's the Ancient of Days? That's another name for God. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Now, as I said, this is just a side note. I got to stay on track. Don't ask me to describe the Trinity in a way that's easy to understand. I just want to say I believe it. There's God the Father, there's God the Son, there's God the Holy Spirit, but they dwell in such perfect unity as one that they are one. There's one God, but three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I just think it's important that we know the Bible does not teach that God is a shapeshifter, that at one point He's the Father, then He turns into the Son, then He turns into the Spirit, but there's only one of them running around. It's the Trinity. They're all separate and unique, so much so that in the book of Daniel, it says the Son of Man was taken and brought unto the Ancient of Days. And in Revelation 5, it says God is on the throne, and the Son of God comes up to the throne and takes the scroll out of His hand. They are separate. They are unique. What's all this going to look like in heaven? I don't know. But the Bible says there's one God, but there's three individual unique persons that make up the Godhead. Okay, let's continue. I'm on the last page of my notes. I don't know if that means anything, but I'm moving to page 3 of 3. Revelation chapter 5 and verse number 8. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. Prayer is not wasted time. Prayer is precious to the eyes of God. And it says in heaven they have vials that are full of odors, which would be a sweet-smelling sacrifice unto God. And it represents the prayers that we have prayed to Him. Verse 9, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And it may seem like the world doesn't want to hear about Jesus. And it may seem like they're all rejecting Him. But the Bible says in heaven, from every nation, every kindred, every tribe and every tongue, there's going to be somebody who heard about Jesus and said, Yes, I want Him as my Savior. And if we have to talk to 5,000 people the rest of our life to find one that wants to say yes to Jesus, it's not a wasted effort. It says that thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God. Let me just say this in heaven, there's not going to be one group who's there because they were born into the right country. And then another group who was born, who is in heaven because they achieved a certain amount of good works. And then another group who comes in at the end because they were saved by the blood. There's only going to be one group of people in heaven. It's those who have had their sins paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ and had it applied to their life by receiving Him as Lord and Savior and believing in Him as the Messiah. It's the only way to heaven is to believe in Jesus Christ. Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God. Praise God. Verse 10. And has made us unto our God kings in earth, and we shall reign on the earth. The Bible is full of prophecies, yes, in Revelation chapter 20, but also other places where it says that when Christ rules and reigns upon the earth, 
His saints shall reign with Him. The Apostle Paul said what? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? Jesus told His twelve disciples, when I sit upon my throne, you're going to sit with me. And in Revelation 20, what I believe it's saying is that whoever does not have the mark of the beast on whoever the second death hath no power, whoever is saved is going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ upon this earth for a thousand years. Verse 11. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beast and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands. J Jason sings us a song sometimes that says, Sing with the angels a hundred million strong, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Ten thousand times ten thousand is one hundred million and then it says, and thousands of thousands beside. Picture this throne in heaven, more than a hundred million angels, and the church of God, and what is in the center, what is the focus? It's God Himself, it's Jesus Christ, and it's praising Him, and it's saying, Thou art worthy. Not we are worthy, not look what, he, he, what we accomplished, but it's going to be about Jesus Christ. What do they say? Verse 12, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And Jesus Christ is worthy. He's worthy of all the praise of heaven. He's worthy of all the worship of your heart. He's worthy not just of you coming to church on Sunday, but He's worthy of your whole entire life being presented as a reasonable sacrifice to Him. He's holy. He's worthy. And let me just say this. He's the answer. We see problems going on. We watch the news. You may have some of it bother you and rattle you. But just know this, that Jesus Christ is sovereign and He's in control. And the world doesn't need a better president in the White House primarily. It needs a Savior. And His name is Jesus Christ. And when He comes back, He's not coming to the White House. He's coming on a white horse. So just make sure your focus isn't somewhere on someone, a man down here who's not worthy. And the Bible says, be not soon shaken in your mind. He's not going to be president. He's going to be king of kings and lord of lords. And no vote at all is going to be held when he comes. He's going to show up and take what already belongs to him. So the New Testament says, don't be soon shaken in your mind. It may rattle us. It may make us angry. I get angry sometimes when I see the sinfulness that is abounding in our country and things that people are doing that are not right. And it probably should to some, some point stir us up a little bit to show that we care. But why are we so angry and so troubled if we're Bible believers? We like to say, I read the end of the book and it says we win. It does. But there's a lot in between now and the very end of the book where it's going to get a little bit dicey. Don't be surprised, Jesus told His disciples, when they persecute you, when they deliver you up before kings and rulers for My sake, I will go with you, He said. I will preserve you. And I will take care of you. So let us look around us and not be rattled. Let us remember that Jesus is King. Sometimes we may say, well, what is going on in the world? Where is this world headed to? We already have the answer. It's headed to the end times. It's headed to a lot of bad things. But ultimately, to Jesus Christ, the worthy one, taking over all. Verse 13, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto Him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. 
Maybe not at that exact moment in history because a lot upon the earth will still be rejecting God, but at some point every knee is going to bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's what John heard. Verse 14, And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped Him that liveth forever and ever. Well, that was my introduction. I have a really, really short outline, so it's okay. Why is He worthy? Number one, He is the Creator of all. Revelation 4.11 said, Thou art worthy because Thou hast created all things. That applies not just to God the Father, but it was said of, jo- of Jesus in John 1.3, All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And now, O Father, glorify Thou me with Thine own self, with the glory which I had with Thee before the world was. He didn't begin to exist in the manger. He always existed in heaven and had equal glory with God the Father. And don't insult my intelligence and rob God of His glory by trying to say this world that exists this morning happened by accident because there was a bunch of nothing and then it exploded and now we have a really good earth because of what happened. That's ridiculous. That only gets believed by people in their heart because they reject God. You don't look at a clock on the wall and explain it away by saying, well, maybe it accidentally exploded and came together and that's why it works. You explain the watch by the watchmaker. And the Bible says that in this earth there is not one person that has ever lived that has not been witnessed to by the sun, moon, and the stars and the creation. They all declare the glory of God. And I will not rob God of His glory. I believe His Word. I believe He created all that is, was, and is to come. And that makes Him worthy of our worship. Number two, because He is holy. What do they say nonstop when they fly back up and down? Not really good, really good, really good, or pretty good, pretty good, pretty good, or almost perfect, almost perfect, almost perfect. They say, holy, holy, holy. That means He's perfect. That means He's never done anything wrong. I know that I'm a sinner like David said. My sin is ever before me. But don't accuse my God of sin because He's never sinned one time. He's holy. He's perfect. 1 Peter 1.9 But with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You see in the Old Testament when they brought the lambs from their flock to sacrifice for their sins, they couldn't take one that was crippled or that was spotted or one that they just kind of wanted to get rid of. They had to take one that had no blemish and no spot because it represented Jesus Christ who when He died on the cross was the precious, perfect, holy, spotless Lamb of God that took away the sins of the world at the end of Jesus' trial when they paid people to come lie about Him. And even the paid witnesses couldn't make their testimony agree. Pilate therefore went forth again and said unto them, Behold, I bring Him forth to you that ye may know that I find no fault in Him. Jesus had a trial. He was pronounced innocent, but the penalty was death. And He died not for His sins, but for our sins and for the sins of the world. And there is no fault in Jesus Christ. No one will ever find fault in Him. He's holy, and that makes Him worthy. Number three, He's worthy because He was slain. Revelation 5.9 says, Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God. And Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to read verse 5-11, through 11, famous passage where God Himself says that because Jesus humbled Himself and obeyed the Father and died upon the cross, because of that, the Father hath chosen to highly exalt Him and to give Him a name above every name. 
Philippians 2.5, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, because he was obedient, because he died, because he was slain. Verse 9 says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted Him, and given Him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, just like Revelation says John heard happening, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You're going to praise Him one day. You're going to acknowledge Him as Lord one day. One way or another, you might as well do it now when it will bring His mercy upon your soul. The leader of every other religion, every dictator that's ever lived, everyone will one day bow and acknowledge Jesus Christ is God. He's worthy, number four, because He rose from the dead. Chapter 5 and verse number 6. Stood a lamb as it had been slain. As in past tense. At one point he was slain. But John said, Behold, I look, I looked, and I saw him standing in the midst of the elders, in the midst of the beast. Stood a lamb as it has been slain. In other words, he was slain at one point. He was dead. He was in the grave. But he's standing here right now and he's not dead anymore. And after three days and three nights in the grave, up from the grave He arose, conquering hell and death. Jesus said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending. He that was dead but now is alive, and I have the keys of hell and of death. He's beaten them both. He has the keys to both, and He'll let you out of both if you will believe in Him. Jesus not only died for our sins, but He rose again. And He's alive today, and He's alive forevermore. Number five, he's worthy because he redeemed his people. Verse nine, he didn't just die, but he died for the purpose of saving us if we will believe in him. Number six, and this is it, he's worthy because he will reign forever. Chapter five, verse 10 and verse number 13 reference the fact that we will reign and that Christ will reign. He will defeat every enemy. He will judge sin and he's going to sit on the throne and let us reign with him. He's worthy because He's the Creator of all. He's holy. He was slain. He rose from the dead. He's redeemed His people. And He will reign forever. And I and you and I are known this morning as a Christian because of Christ and because He's worthy. Let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, as we close out the service now with a time of prayer and have the music play, I pray that our hearts would worship You this morning. I pray that fresh and anew we would proclaim unashamedly to all about us with our life, whether they mock us or not, whether they receive You or not, Jesus Christ is worthy. And I will worship Him. And as Romans 12 says, it is our reasonable